Will you please turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians? Philippians. And we want everybody to be able to look at the passage we'll be considering. These brothers have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back. So get their attention if you need a Bible. They'll get one to you that's marked at the book of Philippians. We'll look at a verse in chapter 1, then one at the very end of the letter, and then concentrate on a couple of verses in chapter 3. So if you find chapter 1, you'll be at the right spot of the book of Philippians. Church history and church buildings give us the names of what are called saints. In church history, the twelve apostles are often referred to as St. Matthew, St. John, and so on. But also non-apostles later in history like St. Augustine or St. Patrick. And then if you drive around almost any city, you'll find church signs with the word saint on them. St. Paul's or St. Stanislaus. St. Stan's for short. And that raises a question, at least for me, what does one have to do in order to be designated a saint? What did Augustine or Patrick or Stan do to be considered worthy of that designation? Well, it's a somewhat involved process that normally takes decades. We've had a chance to see it happen quicker very recently with the death of Pope John Paul II. He died in 2005, and the process for declaring him a saint began almost immediately. And that in itself is unusual because there's normally a five-year waiting period to even begin consideration, but that was waived in his case. As of just a few weeks ago, April 27th of this year, he's no longer known as just Pope John Paul II. He is Pope St. John Paul II. The qualifications for sainthood are these. You have to be dead. As I said, normally there's a waiting period of five years after one dies for an investigation to begin, unless it's waived, as it was in the case of John Paul in what USA Today called the fast track for sainthood. If after investigation the individual is determined to have led an exemplary life, he's declared to be what's called venerable. And if after further investigation it's determined that the individual is responsible for a miracle after he's died... He's beatified. So, for instance, if someone prayed to that person and was healed, that would be a miracle attributable to his intercession and thus worthy of beatification. It was determined that that actually that that had happened for a French nun who was said to have been healed of Parkinson's disease by the intercession of John Paul II. Once the person is beatified, he's almost arrived at sainthood. But there has to be a second miracle attributed to his intercession before he is what is called canonized, that is, declared a saint, and that's what happened with Pope St. John Paul on April 27th of this year. So what do you have to do to deserve to be declared a saint? Well, quite a bit, it turns out, at least in the minds of some. But how does all of that stack up to how the Bible uses the term? The Greek word hagios, translated saint in a number of English translations, is used over 40 times in the New Testament, and it refers to ordinary, everyday believers. In the process I described, you have to be dead in order to be considered, but saint is used in Scripture of living people. 
I've had you turn to Philippians. Look at chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all, and notice this, God's holy people. And that's a translation of hagios. Many of you might have a translation that says, to all the saints, because that's the word. All the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. And then if you look at the very back of that letter to the Philippians, chapter 4 and verse 21, the very beginning, this letter is addressed to God's people, the saints, ordinary folk, separated from the leaders, overseers, and deacons. And then at the end, verse 21 of chapter 4, greet all God's people. Again, that's the word for saints. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people, again the saints, all the saints here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. And so in Scripture, those who are designated saints are living people, and they are regular, ordinary followers of Christ. And what was it that the people in Philippi, and if you read your New Testament, places like Corinth and other letters of your New Testament that were written to particular places and churches located there, what did these people do to deserve that designation? The truth is, I could go around this room and just point out any number of you who know the Lord Jesus And I could say, Joe, you're a saint. Or I could say, John, you're a saint. Or I could say, Rap, I'll hold off on that one. (laughs) But anybody who knows Jesus is a saint according to the New Testament. In the canonization process, to be a saint, you have to have an impressive resume of spiritual accomplishment. But today, from Philippians chapter 3, as we continue our series titled Portraits of Grace, we're given one of the most impressive spiritual resumes that one could imagine. And yet the one who possessed that resume considered it to be garbage. Notice the last part of verse 4 of chapter 3. Philippians 3, the end of verse 4. If anyone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And we're going to look at verses 5 and 6 in just a bit, where he lists all of those accomplishments, in effect, his spiritual resume. But then in verse 7, look at what he says. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Now, who is it that wrote this, and why does he say that? And throughout today's message and continuing next week as we conclude this series, Portraits of Grace, we're going to look at the life of one the Bible calls Saul of Tarsus, otherwise known to most of us as as Paul. In fact, Acts chapter 13 and verse 9 tells us, Saul was also called Paul. So as you hear me refer to either of those today, I'll be referring to the same person. As we look at the life of the background, the spiritual resume of this one Saul, Paul the Apostle, 
I have an outline for you that's inserted in your program. If you don't already have that out, please take a look at that. The first thing that he is going to teach us in these verses in chapter 3 about his, from his own autobiography is that, as I say in the outline, legalistic living is useless. Legalistic living is useless. Now, when I say legalistic living, I'm referring to gaining a relationship with God by what you do. In Paul's case, as we'll see, what he attempted to do was to keep the law of the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, and he thought he was good with God because he thought he had done so. Not only did he think he had done so, his parents had done so by ensuring that from his very birth, he was included in the congregation of God's people. In his spiritual resume that's found in verses 5 and 6 of Philippians 3, there are seven items listed. Four of them have to do with his heritage, and the last three have to do with his accomplishments. But the gospel, hear this, friends, the gospel is not either of those. The gospel is not your heritage, and the gospel is not your accomplishments. And that's why I say in the outline, the gospel frees us from dependence on those two things, the first of which is our heritage. The gospel frees us from depending on our heritage. In verse 5, this is what Paul says about his own heritage, first of all. I, Paul, was circumcised on the eighth day. Now, when he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day, he's referring to how he became a member of the community of Israel. And that's why I say, number one, under our heritage, that the gospel keeps us from depending on is our membership. You see I have quotation marks there? Membership. It keeps us from dependence on our heritage, and the first aspect of our heritage that it keeps us from depending on is our so-called membership, in quotes. And I have it in quotation marks because... For Paul, what this meant was he came under the covenant of Abraham. He was saying, I, by virtue of being circumcised, came under the covenant of Abraham, and I could call Abraham my father because circumcision was the sign of that covenant. And it was accomplished in the way that it should have been accomplished on the eighth day, that is, when Paul was eight days old. And this, in turn, set him apart as a Jew, one who had membership in the community of Israel setting him apart from the Gentiles. But hear this, friends. The reason we're going to see that he includes this here, and he calls it it ultimately garbage, is because your relationship with God is not established by belonging. Your relationship with God was not established by belonging to the community of Israel, and today it is not established by you belonging to the right church. What's more, God does not have grandchildren. So spiritual decisions made on your behalf by others do not relate you to God. Paul says here, my parents made a decision to have me circumcised according to the law on the eighth day, and I depended on, and I was perfectly pleased with my membership in the community of Israel. But he says, as we saw, but ultimately this was not what did it. That's why I have membership then in quotes, because you're not really a member, simply because someone made a decision for you. 
And in our day, that means, among other things, you personally have to decide to be baptized because you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. No one can make that decision for you. Throughout Scripture, the only people who are recorded as having been baptized were people who believed personally. And that's why the Bible teaches believers' baptism. You are to be baptized. I am to be baptized because I have personally placed my faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. If that has never happened with you, we have our next baptism on July 27th. If you say, I don't know what all that means. I don't know why you baptize the way you do. I don't even know what the qualifications are. I have good news. That's what we're here for, to help you with that kind of stuff. So see me. See me today and say, I'd like to meet with you to talk about this important thing called baptism. The gospel frees us from dependence on membership and from dependence on, I say next, family. The gospel frees us from dependence on family. And I say this because of what? Paul says in verse 5 of chapter 3, he says, Not only was I circumcised on the eighth day, but I am of the people of Israel. He's saying that I was a Jew by birth. Now, some people became Jews by the proselyte process, and here's what that meant. They were actually born Gentiles, but they submitted to the customs of Judaism. But Paul's saying here, that wasn't me. I was born a Jew. I was a son of Abraham, not only by circumcision, but also by birth. His circumcision set him apart from the Gentiles, and now his his birth, he's saying, sets him apart from even proselytes, the Gentiles who practice Judaism. But he goes on to say in verse 5, I'm of the people Israel, I am of the tribe of Benjamin. I've been calling him Paul, but I said to you a bit ago, he's known in Scripture as Saul of Tarsus and then Paul the the Apostle as well. He began to use a Roman name, Paul, probably because he was instrumental in Acts chapter 13 in seeing a Roman official, Sergius Paulus, come to the Lord Jesus. And thereafter, he began to be called called Paul. But his given name was was Saul. And he says here, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, here's why that matters. The first king of Israel in the first part of your Bible, the very first king was king, anybody remember? Saul. And what you may not know or may not remember is that Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. And so here is Saul of Tarsus now, whose family lineage is the tribe of Benjamin, the same tribe through which came the first king of Israel, Saul, and his parents took such pride in the fact that they were of the, pri- the, the tribe of Benjamin that they named their son after the first king of Israel, none other than Saul. The tribe of Benjamin had its problems, but it also had its privileges. It was a privileged tribe among the twelve tribes of Israel. For example, Jerusalem, the city, the holy city of Jerusalem, was established in the region of the tribe of Benjamin. And the Old Testament tells a story of when Israel had a great rift back in the days of Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And the pagan sinful crowd went to the north area and they set up idol worship. But in the south, the southern kingdom was called Judah. And the tribe of Benjamin said, we will go to the south 
and we will honor the tribe of Judah, and here's why. The tribe of Judah is the lineage through which came the first king of the united monarchy of, uh, of, of Israel, that of David, a descendant of Judah. So this was a privileged tribe. So Paul was set apart from the Gentiles. He was set apart from the proselytes. He was even set apart from other Jews. But he's saying here that the gospel frees us from dependence on membership and family heritage. With all that stuff, with all those privileges, ultimately it was all garbage. And my dependence is not on any of that. Some of you have not been willing to place your faith and trust in Christ alone because you are attached to your family history. Your parents had you baptized into a church and you feel beholden to that heritage. And Paul is saying here, I had to leave that behind for the truth of the gospel of Jesus. Others of you have relatives who are in such a system. But family ties keep you from lovingly speaking the truth about how to have a relationship with God. Friends, God has called us to a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And Saul of Tarsus could not have his parents do that for him. His lineage was not what he was dependent upon. He had to make that decision for himself and follow the Lord in baptism and then follow the Lord with his life. And every relative that you have that might be in such a system that says, I'm good because I'm in the community. I'm a member of the community. I was baptized when I was a baby. You have an obligation from a holy God to tell them lovingly, that is not the good news. That is not the gospel. The gospel frees us from dependence on our heritage, that is membership in the community, from dependence on our family, and then I say thirdly, from dependence on culture. Culture. Verse 5, as Paul lays out his resume, he says, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. When he says, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews, I'm a Hebrew And I was born to two Hebrews. That's why it's plural. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. That is, my parents were both both Jews. Not just one, both. He gives us some more details. We are given some more details in testimonies that Paul gave in the book of Acts about his life and, and his career. I want to fill in a few more of those. The culture from which Saul of Tarsus came. In Acts 21, he says this, I, Saul, am from Tarsus, a citizen, he says of himself, of no ordinary city. Now, why does he say that? Why does he say Tarsus, the place I came from, was no ordinary city? Well, it's for a number of reasons. One is it was a prominent city in the Roman Empire, so prominent, in fact, that uh, Antony and Cleopatra met in the city of Tarsus. If you go back and, and watch that, you'll, you'll catch that next time you watch it. This is all happening. They're meeting in all of its pomp and circumstance in this very place called Tarsus. It was also a university town. 
Now, it was not a university town in the sense that Ann Arbor is or Ypsilanti is, where you have a faculty and a curriculum that is resident there, but rather they had established a place for lecturers to come and for people to to come and hear those lecturers, and those lecturers were remunerated by fees paid by the people who, who heard them. So Paul grew up in a town like this, and this is undoubtedly where he gained much of his exposure to Greek philosophy, as these lecturers would come through. And you see his understanding of Greek philosophy in passages like Acts chapter 17 when he preaches in the city of Athens, the very capital of of Greek philosophy. So he says, I was born in no ordinary city. I am from Tarsus. And then he says as well in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 22, I was born a Roman citizen. The city Tarsus was called a free Roman city. And here's what that meant. It meant that the officials of the Roman Empire provided Roman protection for that city, but they would allow the inhabitants of that city to follow their own laws and and customs. And so here Paul is. He's a Jew. He's able to follow Jewish customs in the city Tarsus, but nevertheless had Roman citizenship because he was born to a Roman citizen of Tarsus. Born in Tarsus. Privileged in many respects. Then he tells us something else about himself in the book of Acts. He says, I was born in Acts 22 in Tarsus, but I was brought up in this city, Jerusalem. Born in Tarsus, probably lived his first 12 or so years there. I'll tell you why in a minute. And then relocated to Jerusalem and was brought up in Jerusalem. Now, here's what is important about Jerusalem. He came in touch with a renowned teacher in the city of Jerusalem. And while he was there, in all likelihood, Paul probably lived with, um, with his sister, an older sister. We know that Paul had a sister in Jerusalem because Acts chapter 23 tells us this. Some Jews formed a conspiracy to kill Paul. But when the son of Paul's sister heard about this, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Now, put all that together. (laughs) Paul's got access to a portion of his sister's house in Jerusalem. And the son of the sister hears about this conspiracy, goes in and tells Paul. And probably not long after his 12th year, because it was in the 12th year that a young Jewish boy would become, have his bar mitzvah, become a son of the law. That's what bar mitzvah means. And those who were especially privileged would be linked to a, a teacher. They would become a disciple of a particular teacher. So probably not long after his 12th year, he became a disciple of the renowned teacher Gamaliel. The Bible says this of him in Acts chapter 5. Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, was honored by all the people. This Gamaliel was a grandson of the absolutely rock star famous Rabbi Hillel. Gamaliel was his his grandson. To be taught by Gamaliel was a, a great privilege indeed. The Mishnah, which is a Jewish commentary on the Old Testament law, but it said of uh, Gamaliel that at his death, Reverence for the law ceased, and purity and abstinence died. That's how revered this man was. 
And in Paul's resume, in Acts chapter 22, he says this, I, Paul, studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law. Gamaliel was this marvelous teacher then. And Paul had this marvelous upbringing then in the Jewish law. But there was something about Gamaliel that Saul would have to contend with. And that was Gamaliel was what was called a, a Hellenist. A Hellenist, a Greek word, Hellene, means Greece. And a Hellenist was one who had adopted Greek culture. And this was an ongoing battle for Jews in the first century. Should we remain pure to our Jewish heritage, or should we adopt customs from Greek culture? Should we become Hellenists? And Gamaliel had become a Hellenist. And so in those days, there were these two factions among the Jews. There were those who remained what we call Orthodox, following Jewish traditions. There were others who were heavily influenced by Greek philosophy, and they were what we call Hellenistic Jews. They followed the fads of Greek philosophy. And here's what Paul is saying here when he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's saying that despite the fact that I had this teacher, Gamaliel, and I gleaned so much from him, and he sought to influence me toward Hellenism, I didn't follow the fads that others did. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. My family never submitted to Greek influences. If ever there was a guy who had a resume... Just because of his heritage, it was this guy, Saul of Tarsus. But not only does he tell us here the gospel frees us from dependence on our heritage, but I say secondly in your outline, that the gospel frees us from dependence on our accomplishments. And Paul had them, and he lists three of them. The first of his accomplishments is that he was extremely diligent. The gospel frees us from our dependence on diligence. Because notice the end of verse 5. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. Not only was Paul a Pharisee, which was the strictest sect of adherence to all the fine details of the Old Testament law, plus all of those they had added to the Old Testament law, which Jesus chastised them for, you may remember. Jesus says, you have added to the law these man-made rules. But Paul was an adherent to that. He was a Pharisee. He followed very strictly, meticulously, the law. It is possible that Paul was actually so revered for his following of the law, his meticulous following of the, the law of God, that he was placed on the select group called the Sanhedrin, the ruling Jewish council. And I say that because Acts chapter 26 says this, when Christians were put to death, I, Saul, Paul, cast my vote against them. And where was it that Paul was able to exercise a vote? And it's very possible that he exercised that vote as part of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. He took the most strict approach to the law, and there were two approaches to the law in his day. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees were theological liberals. They didn't believe in the resurrection, in spirit beings, and so on. Paul says, I was not a liberal. I was orthodox to the core. So I was very diligent about keeping the law and even things that were not in the law. But it was still garbage. 
He says, secondly, the gospel frees us from dependence on our heritage in terms of our accomplishments, our diligence, but also our enthusiasm. Enthusiasm. And I say that for this reason. Verse 6 says, As for zeal, I was persecuting the church. Now, when did Saul begin persecuting the church? You all remember when that started? The Bible tells us that a persecution broke out upon the church after the first Christian martyr, Stephen, was stoned to death. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 7 of the stoning of Stephen, and there Stephen gave this marvelous sermon, a long sermon that is the entirety of chapter 7. But at the very end of that chapter, it says they were stoning Stephen, and Saul approved of their killing him. The passage tells us that the people who were stoning him laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And in so doing, he was giving his consent, his approval to what was happening. And it appears that the sermon that Stephen preached so incited the hatred of this young man, Saul, that verse 3 of chapter 8 tells us this. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Here is this man who is so devoted to the law, is so devoted to the heritage of his family, is so devoted to the privileges that he deems important of being brought up in the community of Israel, that he is incited to hatred against Christ and Christians. And that's because before he was marvelously saved by Christ, Paul believed firmly that Jesus Christ was a blasphemer. He believed firmly that Christ had been crucified justly and that his disciples had stolen his body away and they concocted the story that he had risen from the dead. He believed firmly that the righteous thing to do was to smother the church at birth and kill the disciples, persecute them. He was responsible for the first martyr in the Christian church, the stoning of Stephen, as we saw. He was responsible for the scattering of the children of God out of Jerusalem. He persecuted the children of God, hurting them until they they blasphemed, he said, in the book of Acts. The church was terrified of this man, Saul. He was a sincere Pharisee, enthusiastic, zealous, and he was sincerely wrong. You hear this, friends? How many of us think people are okay as long as they're sincere? As long as you devote yourself to what you believe. Paul thoroughly devoted himself to what he believed, and what he believed was wrong. So he could not be dependent upon his accomplishments. He could not be dependent on his diligence, on his enthusiasm. I say thirdly, he could not be dependent on his goodness. Again, verse 6, as for righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. When he says that, 
that the gospel frees us from dependence on our goodness. He's not claiming sinless perfection. He was saying that there was no one who could examine his life externally and find any point of the law that he was guilty of breaking. No one could look at my life and say, you've broken this commandment. You failed to offer this sacrifice. I was above reproach. So what credentials this man had? He was head and shoulders above the Jews of his day. But he goes on to teach us in Philippians 3 that all these accomplishments are worthless in establishing a relationship with God. Legalistic living is useless. But I say secondly in your outline, gospel-centered living is priceless. Legalistic living is useless. Gospel-centered living is priceless. We read earlier verses 7 through 9. And the question for us is, what happened to this guy, Saul? What happened to him such that he went from the profile that we've just seen to being the man who wrote the book of Philippians and writes this about himself? What happened to him? He gives his testimony in Acts chapter 26, and he said this, About noon, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. Now, just catch a couple of the details there. It's about noon, high noon. The sun is out, but brighter than the sun is the presence of this one who is going to talk to me. And Paul has an encounter with none other than Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He tells him, you are my chosen emissary to the Gentiles. And Paul is marvelously converted. What happened to him? Hear this. He found that Jesus was alive. And if Jesus is alive, he must be Lord. I, Saul, was convinced that he was a blasphemer. But God would not raise a blasphemer. And he's now alive. So therefore, he must be God the Son. And you hear me well, friends. There is no other option. Either Jesus is a blasphemer or he is God in the flesh. Do not believe the lie for a moment that your friends and acquaintances have. Perhaps you say this. Hey, I'm good with Jesus. I just don't believe he's God. But I got no problem with you believing that. All right, think about that. (laughs) This guy we believe in then is a blasphemer and a liar or a lunatic, as C.S. Lewis said. And here are your choices. He is a lunatic, he is a liar, or he is the Lord. And that's what happened to Paul. When he says in verse 7, Whatever was to my profit, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. He is saying he threw it all overboard. And Jerry Bridges gives in his book, The Gospel for Real Life, a good explanation of what Paul says here. He's saying, I threw it all overboard. Now, why is it stated that way? There's only one other place in the New Testament where this word that's translated loss is used. It's in Acts chapter 27, and it records a disastrous voyage to Rome that Paul had experienced only months before writing this letter to the Philippians. And in that account, Paul speaks twice of the loss of cargo suffered because of a violent storm. 
So in those days, when a ship was caught in a violent storm, as a last resort, the crew would throw cargo and tackle overboard in order to lighten the load. And that would cause the ship to ride higher on the water, diminishing the danger of being swamped by the high waves washing over the deck. But however, such an action would entail great loss to the ship owner or the captain. The only other scriptural account that speaks of the loss of a ship's cargo is in Jonah chapter 1. In such heavy seas as Paul and Jonah experienced, the cargo actually became dangerous. To keep it on board jeopardized not only the ship, but the crew and the passengers as well. In both of those instances, the masters of the ships were faced with a difficult choice. Throw the cargo overboard and suffer loss, but hopefully save the ship. Or keep the cargo and risk losing everything, cargo, ship, and the lives of those who were passengers and crew. In this passage in Philippians 3, Paul speaks of the loss of his religious credentials in the same way that he earlier spoke of the loss of that cargo on the ship. And the analogy is this. Any confidence in one's religious experience on the issue of salvation is not only useless, hear this, it's downright dangerous. Though Paul had nothing to be ashamed of and much to be thankful for, those very things could keep him from eternal salvation. That's where the analogy with the cargo ends. A ship's crew, especially the captain, throw throw it overboard with deep regret because doing so meant financial loss. And think of those ship owners. They were what we would call today small business owners. They had to unload their cargo into the sea. It was a great financial loss to them. But for Paul, there was no regret, none whatsoever. In fact, notice how he speaks of his cargo of religious background and attainments as rubbish at the end of verse 8. We saw it earlier. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. I read the story recently of two men who were kneeling to, together, kneeling beside each other in a church. And one of them was a prominent judge in the community. Another man was an outcast, a beggar. And one of the people who witnessed them kneeling next to each other came up to the, the judge, the respected judge, and he said, that was a, a miracle what I just saw. And that you that this man would be kneeling next to you, a respected judge. He said, no, the real miracle is that I would be kneeling next to him because in all of the gifts that God has given me, those are the very things that for so long kept me away from God. And the miracle is that God humbled me such that I came to the foot of the cross and saw my need of the Savior. And I see that I'm no better than that man. Sometimes, isn't it true, friends, that the hardest people to come to Christ are the people who see themselves as the best, those who believe that they have it all together. But you need to understand what we say in our take-home truth, that a relationship with God comes only through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, only through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Saul of Tarsus found. He became Paul the Apostle, and we're going to see the career of Paul the Apostle next week. Before we end today, 
I want to offer every person here the opportunity to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, I can do that right now, right now in this very moment you can do that. How do I know you can do that? Because there's nothing you do. It's what he's done and you believe, you trust, you place your faith in what he has done. And in so doing, you are saying to God, the fact that I was baptized at two weeks old, the fact that I was raised in a religious home, the fact that I believe I'm a member of the right church, all of that has nothing to do with my relationship with God. My relationship with God comes only through the person and work of the Lord Jesus. But he offers that relationship to you. So you come to him with your spiritual resume cast aside. You come to him with the empty hands of faith. So you realize you're a sinner just like Saul did. Recognize who Jesus is and what he did. God came to earth to do for you what you could not do for yourself, die on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. He rose signifying that he is Lord of heaven and earth, and you bow your life before him. And so you repent. Lord, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to go your way, not my way. We're going to bow in just a moment. When we do that from your heart to God in your own words, you say to him, Lord, I'm a sinner. I put everything that I have aside. I have nothing to offer you. And I ask you to give me all that Jesus accomplished on the cross and in his resurrection. I give my life to you. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for recording for us the career of Saul of Tarsus and then the great Apostle Paul. Lord, we thank you that in that biography, we see your mercy extended to one that no one, no one would have thought could possibly be saved. And even after he was miraculously saved, so many were fearful of him, afraid of him, that they would not receive him. We thank you for recording this, because in so doing, you make very clear that your mercy extends to the darkest, most sinful heart. And sometimes, Father, the darkest, most sinful heart is the religiously devoted heart. The one that believes that we can do this because we've kept the rules, because we have the right membership, because we had the right family. Thank you for the testimony of the great apostle. And help each of us to have that same testimony, that we consider everything loss except for knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. I ask you to draw people out of the world and to yourself in this sacred moment. Holy Spirit, move on the hearts of any who came into this room, depending in any way at all upon their own merit and their own works. And help them to place their full trust and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.